you know, for me, the kind of the foundational critic of technology in this way is Martin Heidegger, mm -hmm. who was a German philosopher in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, and he wrote a fantastic, scintillating book that's so dense. So, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd recommend that to everybody because it's not readable. It's a lot of things, but readable is not one of them. Um, but it's called The Question Concerning Technology. And it's a brief book. And it's like just, you know, clocks in just over 100 pages. It is some of the deepest thinking on the essential nature of technology I've ever come across. And he inspired an entire wave of techno-ethics, techno-criticism. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today is a special episode. It's part of a new series I'm doing, which is called Philosophy with Friends, where I choose a book or I ask somebody what they're reading. I read it, and then we sit down and have a conversation about it. Today I talked with Nicholas Breisowitz of the Long Now Foundation. And we talked about a book called The New Dark Age, uh, which is all about the unintended consequences of our reliance on technology and potentially some solutions for how to get out of the hole that we've dug ourselves in. So if you've been wrestling with this question of what is technology's purpose in your life and what is your relation to the shift to technology, I think you'll find a lot of value in listening to this, this, this episode. Um, if you do, Please find us on iTunes and give us a review or uh, find me on Twitter and let me know what you think at Stuart Alsop III. Uh, really hope you enjoy this episode. Please let me know what you think. Thanks. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Nick, uh, Nicholas Breisowitz, uh, the uh, Director of Development at the Long Now Foundation. Uh, and also a student of philosophy. Um, I'm really excited to sit down and talk with you, Nicholas, today about this book, um, The Dark Age, uh, which Nicholas suggested that I read. Uh, and we're basically just going to have a conversation about it so you, you, the listeners, can get a sense of the book and get some ideas from the book without necessarily having to read of it. Think of it like a spark notes for, uh, for, for reading. Uh, so welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to read this. I think the full title on my screen here is New Dark Age, Technology in the End of the Future, which puts this squarely into my wheelhouse as somebody who's interested in the future not necessarily ending. Um, and, you know, Long Now Foundation, for those of you out there that don't know it, um, is working to kind of inspire and encourage long-term thinking in the framework of the next and the last 10,000 years. And so 10,000 years is about how long we've been, uh, you know, human civilization's been going. And putting ourselves in the middle of that story means we have to look about 10,000 years out in the future. So the end of the future is... It's harrowing. Mm. We should definitely discuss what James Bridle has to say about it. Totally. And you wanted to be clear that your position is not uh, the long now position, correct? Correct, yeah. So um, for conversational purposes of this podcast, I'm kind of just throwing some ideas off the cuff that came to me as I was reading the book the first or second time. Um, really curious what you think about it as well. Mm. Um, but Long Now Foundation doesn't necessarily have a dogmatic position on some of these things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's important to clarify just in case anyone's like, wait, Long Now thinks that? Uh -huh. um, well, I do, but... Cool. So what what was the biggest thing that you learned from this book that you didn't know before you read it? That I learned? Um... I think this book reinforced something that some other books that are critical of technology and tech development have really laid the groundwork for, and that's the idea um, that the solution to technolo technological problems or the problems introduced by technology are not themselves technological mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense that, you know, if Facebook's going off the rails and disrupting democracy, that we need to create some tool, some kind of 
technological augmentation that's going to take care of this. So there's this temptation to think that everything is just a quantitative problem, as if, you know, if we just get more tech, these problems will get solved. And this book, like so many others that came before it, although I find this book particularly readable, so if anybody's like interested in getting into the tech class genre, um, which is the term I've kind of heard thrown thrown around recently about a lot of these books, Bad Blood, mm-hmm. Zucked, you know, a lot of this, um, a lot of these books that are talking about the problems that technology has introduced into our world. Um, yeah, it's like this, it, in the tech world, a lot of people think the problem is just we need to come up with a better way of identifying and flagging hate speech. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. is it really that? Is yeah. that really... So that's I think the problem that's been created, yeah. Yeah, and so James Bridle really blows that question wide open. Like he's definitely causing us to look into that and wonder if the solution is really more technology. So I think it's a really good, it's a provocative book. Um, I, I learned there's a lot of really good anecdotes mm-hmm. about ways that technology has failed in unpredictable ways, uh-huh. and I found that really awesome. And it's going to make you know it's a good dinner conversation fodder. Mm-hmm. These like stories for your back pocket, but also just. He where he weaves a narrative arc through all of them that shows you how this isn't just like these aren't fluke examples of technology. There's something essential to technology that introduces these kinds of things. I think somewhere in the book he says, you know, for everything shown, something is hidden. Or the more that's shown, the more is hidden. And and that's like that's a that's a claim about the essential nature of technology that's really interesting, and we can talk about that a little bit. But um, I loved how readable this critique was. Mm-hmm. I can recommend this to just about anybody. And there's a good example of what you were mentioning about how technology won't fix more technology was the fact that pharmaceuticals companies, the way that pharmaceutical companies are running today are not as we imagine as a bunch of people in white labs all tinkering with little, you know, um, vials and making chemical reactions. It's a bunch of data processing that's going in and figuring out what, what next, what combination of these chemicals will turn into something that humans can use. And it's turned into something that he calls E-Room's law, which is the opposite of Moore's law. As Mm -hmm. the computing power of technology grows, the actual discovery of drugs is going down. So we're actually discovering less drugs. Or the the cost of it's going through Mm -hmm. the roof. I think it's a correlation between the advancement of technology and the cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it ends up, like the cost ends up doubling in some ridiculously short time. Mm -hmm. I can probably... And so the, what that brings up, he get, brings up a good point, which I actually agree with, is the, the idea that it's not making the technology solely better, it's making the connection between the human and the, the human using the technology and the technology together uh, to figure out a better way to do something. And this is something that's happening in my own life. I've started to look for technologies that improve my ability to do, be a human. Uh, Duolingo is a good example of this, uh, using using a, a computer to uh, teach me a language in a way that I couldn't have done 20 to 30 years ago, but it requires my effort and my input as well. Uh, and then there's another thing called spaced repetition software, which is really um, you know nerdy, techy, goofy, but it's a way of uh, doing spaced repetition memorization that's like giving me 90% recall, but both of those require input on my level, so it's not just a sense of like, oh, I'm just going to shove this off to a computer and let the computer do it, but it's this interaction between the computer and the human. I love that. Yeah, the relationship is really what we're calling into question. What is our relationship to technology? Mm -hmm. And, you know, James Bridle is not the first person to really call that relationship into question. Um, 
you know, for me, the kind of the foundational critic of technology in this way is Martin Heidegger, mm. who was a German philosopher in the early 20th century. Mm. Um, and he wrote a fantastic, scintillating book that's so dense. It's, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd recommend that to everybody because it's not readable. It's a lot of things, but readable is not one of them. Um, but it's called The Question Concerning Technology. And it's a brief book. And it's like just, you know, clocks in just over 100 pages. It is some of the deepest thinking on the essential nature of technology I've ever come across. And he inspired an entire wave of of techno ethics, techno criticism. Um, James Bridle's picking up on a lot of that stuff without name checking Heidegger, which I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, I don't think he name checks Heidegger even once in this book, which is crazy. I mean, that's a, I don't think it's an omission. I think it's a strategic elision where he's really thinking, like, I just don't need to bring that in here. Uh Like, he's really trying to bring these ideas down from the mountain and even just referencing Heidegger. I do it here in conversation sometimes. You can watch people's nictitating membranes just close <laughs> over and they're bored and it's like, oh, this is not the way to go about getting these techno-critical ideas home. Yeah. And as I don't, I've uh, never read anything specifically by Heidegger, but everything I've read about him says that it's really dense and hard to read. So I have that stand, that his brand, I guess, is very, is very dense. Yeah, he uses a really economical lexicon to get his ideas across. That, like, mm. once you start to understand what he's saying, you're like, oh, that is actually the best way to say it. Mm. But, you know, it, when you first hear it, it almost sounds like another language. It sounds borderline gibberish. <laughs> and so you kind of stare at it for a long It's like those 3D eye books that we magic had eye. as kids. Yeah, yeah. Magic Eye. Yeah. You just stare at it for a while, and it's just some colors and some weird tessellating pattern, and then all of a sudden a dolphin <laughs> leaps <sense>. out to you, <laughs> and you're like, oh my god, I've been staring at a dolphin for the last 15 minutes. Uh-huh. Heidegger is exactly like that. Uh-huh. In fact, I've had I've had experiences with Heidegger texts where I just sit with it for, for you know one, two, three times through it, and it's only on the third or fourth time where I start to understand what he's saying mm. and why it really did have to be said in that way. But um, it's something of a joke is how dense his language can be and he invents new new ways of stringing together verbs you know he, he, Heidegger always says things like the the Nick and Stewart podcast recordingness like that kind of construction as a singular entity in his in his language is, is not uncommon so and, and to tie this into the book uh, the book mentions something that um, science fiction writers call steam uh, steam engine time which is the idea that ideas come up all at the same time and get into 20 people's brains at the same time and all come out at that same time. And what you're talking about is that there's a thread that actually extends through history and that Heidegger was one of the first people who brought this idea that's now coming to fruition as technology is becoming more uh, enveloped inside of our lives. What is something? What is that initial thread that Heidegger caught onto of what technology's role in society is and uh, how it's affecting our development as humans? Well, he he was the first, I think, to really explicitly point out that the essence of technology is not in itself something technological, Um, that it's something else to it. It's a little bit more mysterious and requires some unpacking. That is the question concerning technology, which is Mm. um, the name of that book. And so he was really, he kind of came to the conclusion, you know, in a nutshell, if I'm going to condense his whole thing, is is really that like having a free relationship to technology is is so important for preserving what mysterious things we care about in the human condition. So we don't fully understand a lot of the human condition, like some of it is still mysterious, despite, you know, prognostications that we've explained away consciousness and we figured out, you know, what a human is. Mm. Like, there's still, you know, I think even, I think any thinking person will admit some modicum of mystery to that. And and therein's the rub, right? That's like just that that 1% or whatever that isn't explained is actually, that's that's everything. It's all there. Mm. Um, and Heidegger was kind of showing that technology, if it takes over completely, 
And by that, and I should probably talk a little bit about what he meant about tech, what he meant by technology, because he's being a bit jargony about it. He's thinking of technology as um, prior to the idea of technology. There's this idea of looking at the world in a way that is technological, and that's looking at the world as a bunch of resources. And if the world's composed of resources, human resources, natural resources, temporal resources, which is, you know, again, in our wheelhouse here at the Long Now Foundation, if you're looking at time and people, these mysterious things, as resources to be managed, well, we can use computers, we can use machines, we can figure out ways of managing them more logistically, more optimally. And so the optimal management of resources is kind of what we're all about. And so you think of things like Airbnb and they're, you know, optimally allocating all the downtime in people's apartments when they're on vacation or something like that, right? Mm. And so there's gains to be had. There's efficiency gains when you do this logistical move. But what happens is there's almost like a zero-sum tension between the logistical gains that you that you get when you do something more efficiently with technology and the amount of meaning that gets sapped out of it. Mm. So you can think of, and, and Heidegger talked about like kind of the tension between mythos, um, where we get like mythology, like in meaning and story um, and narrative, and then this idea of like logos. And these are both two uh, two translations for like the word, right? So you can have logos or mythos. They're both the word, in it, but like logos is very specifically doing more with less. It's this efficiency thing. And so his critique of technology, why he says we need to have a free relationship to it, is because if everything's just resources, like that you know, we're kind of running into this situation that we've seen already in history where mm. people who run a factory don't care about the lives of the factory workers because they're just human capital. Mm. Like, you know, they just like you arrange their days, you know, like a Foxconn situation you can imagine, right? So interesting because in technology, there's all these myths about starting a company. You can't start a company and raise capital without developing your myth as a founder and then kind of creating this myth and sharing it with, with investors or even employees and stuff like that. But at the same time, we've got this technological outlook that then um, takes people and turns them into technology as well. Because that's what I got from what you just said was essentially mm -hmm. Heidegger, the time frame that he was writing was 1850s or earlier than that? Oh, no, like 1930s, 40s, 19, 50s. Okay, so, yeah. so he, the Industrial Revolution had already happened. So he had already seen people move from a feudal state to a, uh, um, to a technological state and human became human resources, human mm -hmm. output and everything like that. So that's really interesting. Um, that's really yeah. Cool. He saw it happening a long time ago, and you know, Alan Watts was also like a, a hell of a Heideggerian, right? And he's spoken a little bit, I think, a lot more eloquently and a little bit more legibly mm. about um, about the idea of like air air travel, right? Something we just take for granted as being awesome, right? Mm. And it totally is awesome. Like mm. all technology, it's totally awesome and mm. sexy. Um, but there's also this aspect that the more air travel is made efficient and easy and inexpensive, the more every place you land starts to look the same. Mm. Like yep. no longer can you really get away because you're not getting away because away has changed. Mm. You're the idea of you know think about like what was I I saw uh, Scorsese made a movie about missionaries going to Japan a couple of years ago uh -huh. right and this is like it was a whole other world for these Christian missionaries I think from like Spain to go and visit the Japanese islands and just see what life was like on the other side of the globe and now like if you were flying between Spain and you know and Japan it wouldn't look that different you know you'd have the same kind of airport amenities mm. you'd probably have the same basic structure to the cars that would pick you up same kind of 
tacit social agreement for behavior mm-hmm. like red lights everywhere yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so we've, we've kind of landed on something which is the optimal outcome we've optimized this mm-hmm. and we can do more with less now this mm-hmm. is actually really good like standardization technological development these are all really good things in a way mm-hmm. but as James Bridal points out in this book again the more that's revealed the more that's made efficient the more it's kind of hidden in there oh interesting and he has some good examples and he, so he says basically the rise of computation leads to more complexity not less complexity our initial thought was the more we compute the, this data the, uh, the, the more things will become clear but mm-hmm. actually it turns out that the more things are becoming uncertain yeah, he had a beautiful take on this idea, and he calls it computational thinking. So there's a lot of ways of doing talking about this. I think computational thinking was his phrase, and it's a good one. It, it, and it's really also what Heidegger means, I think, when Heidegger's talking about Bestand and her standing reserve, uh, just resources. Um, Bridal talks about how we have this like three-part dance move with technology where we look at the world and we reduce it to some data, mm-hmm. then we compute that data, and then we use those computational models to project that into the future. And so it's like this three thing, and, and that worked for a while, right? It worked as our computational resources got better, um, we started to be able to put more of the world inside of our understanding, for lack of a better word. But then all of a sudden, so he uses the weather as the example, right? And so early weather prediction was like, you could predict a day out maybe, like, and then eventually as it got better, you could predict two days out. And we got as far as like a week to 10 days out. But what's weird is, our technological development is now impacting the weather and it's causing that horizon that we could see to come back towards us. And so our models, even though they're more complex or like they're more, you know, they're more uh, advanced models of weather simulation, our our horizon for prognostication is actually coming back to Mm. us. Oh, because weather's getting more and that only, unpredictable. That won't only be with weather, but that also looks like it'll be with politics. It'll look like development. Everything will now become less ability. Our ability to predict will become less effective, which brings another thing to mind, which is that as civilized human beings, I say that with quote marks, <laughs> civilized human beings, we look back at the history and, and people 2,000 years ago, Plato and people in these time, and be like, oh, there's just, you know, savages or, you know, uncivilized. Not all of us do that, but I'm making a generalization. But we tend to look at the past and say like, oh, these guys, you know, they were, they had a different time. But these guys were also kind of dealing with the same thing, which is that the world is fundamentally uncertain and that we come up with all these rationalizations to make us think that we, we are safe and secure in this thing. We're always trying to predict the weather. If we're not trying to predict the weather, we're trying to talk to the gods to get them to, uh, to give us good weather. So there's always this trying to this battle, this everlasting battle between humans and un- uncertainty and unpredictability, and this seems to be where this book is kind of bringing us back and like saying, okay, those things are still important. Like, yeah, yeah, I I think you're totally right. This is this is going to be a peren- like a perennial human problem mm. is that we do want to understand things, we want to have models, we want to be able to predict things and rely on things being stable. And that's a good thing. I think that is the civilizing force, right? It's kind of our fight against entropy. Mm. We're just trying to make sure that the trains run on time and that, you know, the, the buildings were, you know, habiting habit, um, our, our earthquake proof, you know, they're built to some kind of standard code. Civilization is a good thing, for sure. And I think mm. so is technology. I think these things kind of go hand in hand. But what's what mm. bridal highlights and what I think Heidegger's criticizing, and there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about this, is the idea that at the same time that technology is making things more computable, more understandable, mm. more tractable. Mm. It's almost hiding in like something of a technological unconsciousness. Mm. Um, this like lurking shadow uh, aberrant data point that the model hasn't taken into account. So, you know, Nassim Taleb wrote 
the book about black swans, right? That basically, you know, you're going to have some eruption into your experience of reality from outside of it that you never predicted. And he, you know, he talks about the turkey problem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The turkey problem being that every single morning, if you're a turkey, every single morning the farmer comes out to the turkey coop or whatever and feeds you and it's like a positive thing all the way up until the end of november when the farmer comes out with an axe and exactly what you took to be an indicator of the solidity of your model and your worldview actually ends up upending it completely Mm -hmm. and so in what situation are we also building these models while kind of neglecting to pay attention to the decisive contingent factor that Mm. didn't fit into them. And what Talib says is that if the more, the more you ignore those factors, the more often a black song will take you by surprise. Exactly. And so that's why I like this book, Mm. even though I'm working with an organization and we're, we're betting the bank on the next 10,000 years of human civilization and Mm. trying to work really hard to figure out how we get there Mm. and how we can inspire and encourage humans to surmount these challenges. I love the idea that there's, criticism of this world um the technological world that is right or the you know the computational thinking world i love this criticism coming from people who understand this deeply i think that's how we're going to get forward it's like almost like you're you're not breaking eye contact mm. with the thing that's threatening you right which is the world you know mm-hmm. the world is threatening the civilizational project like that's why we need to figure out ways of you know uh, meeting the challenge of climate change, for example, right? Um, and there's a lot of, you know, yeah, so. Mm. That's really interesting. We can also, so, I had said that if we ever got to a point in this conversation where we're just kind of like stuck, because it's, it's such a big concept, like where do you even move forward with it? Um, at the same time that I was reading this, the second time, um, in preparation for this, I was also kind of grabbing some quotes from Nietzsche um, and some other stuff like Schopenhauer that's much older, right? So these are things from the 1800s that kind of presage this this criticism, this worldview, right? And of course, Bridal is totally in the, the lineage of a Nietzsche, right? This kind of like master of suspicion. He's being very suspicious of technology. But there's a couple that stuck out to me as just being like really kind of interesting, right? And I wanted to get your thoughts on some of these. So um, in Nietzsche's Gay Science, which he wrote in 1882, he has this quote, to what extent can truth endure incorporation? That is the question. That is the experiment. And when I read about incorporated truth, I'm thinking about a model of the world, a true predictive model of the world that's literally running on a hardware. It's actually, you know, even software at some point is instantiated materially inside these computers. And it's like, to what extent can truth endure incorporation? To what extent can it endure? The idea that truth would have to endure this experience. Um, right? Like this is hard. And that's exactly what's happening with our models. To what extent can our models endure being actually explicitly and representationally captured and then exploited for our own gain? Um, how long can we burn fossil fuels before this? You know, these are kind of things like um, these things kind of snap back at us in a way. Mm. That and is the question. That is the experiment. And this brings me back to the thing I was thinking about, but I forgot, which is I'm starting to believe there's always this question of free will and human beings uh, capacity to change the the environment around them and whether we're totally subject to our environment or whether we have free will and can and predict it and the thing that keeps on coming back to mind is that the only free will we truly have is to lean towards truth or to lean towards delusion and so uh, <coughs> leaning towards truth in this sense would be accepting that we are the problem is not a technological problem and that we need to educate those around us and we need to talk about these issues before they become a problem. What do you think of that? About that being more the more truthful approach? Yeah, or just the nature of free will, the nature of free will and 
every so in reading this book, I became somewhat uh, um, depressed is too big of a word, but but like you know like oh shit we're 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 screwed because uh, I don't uh, because part of me doesn't believe in humanity's capacity to change these things. Um, <clears throat> what is our free will? Is this because mm. he doesn't talk too much about uh, how we solve these issues? He kind of just brings them up. Right. Okay. Yeah. No. That's a that's a good tack for this conversation. Uh, I think I'm going to give the first word to one of the founders of the Long Now Foundation, Danny Hillis, who has a great quote on this topic where he says, "I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm not optimistic because I think our problems are small. I'm optimistic because I think our capacity to deal with problems is great." Mm. Right. So he has a lot of faith in human agency, uh, both collective human agency as a group, mm. um, but then I think also like individual agency. When we talk about free will, we're mostly talking about individuals, right? Yeah. Um, I, I wrestled with free will for a long time. I, I wrestle with it less now because I'm, I'm fairly convicted in in, a, in like a weird intuitive sense of how I feel about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, Dan Dennett played a big role in this. And I don't follow Dan Dennett on all of his philosophical stuff. In fact, a lot of it I, I, I don't really follow him all the way to. But he has this idea of compatibilist free will, which you might be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is this, that having an agent in your environment that can model you perfectly... Mm-hmm is extraordinarily maladaptive, evolutionarily speaking. You just don't want anyone at the watering hole to know exactly what moves you're gonna make at every single point because then they can just take you out yep. as, as a competitor, right? Or keep you around or manipulate you or use you as some kind of um, you know, a, you know, a pertinence to their activities. Yep. And so it's really, really maladaptive. So you would think across long uh, spans of time, every agent would try to get some kind of information asymmetry on other agents, even if just in the smallest way right and so like it was a blade runner where one of those um mm-hmm. androids ends up slamming a nail through their hand mm-hmm. and it's like this radical expression of free will where it's like no model would predict that i would like like self you know uh, inflict harm on myself to such a, an extent so radically right here and that's proving to myself that i can still mm-hmm. make a choice you mm-hmm. know that's against the model and so I, I swear i'm still on the idea of like free will and like what we can do agency wise um the next piece of it and why why this is important for the Techlash book is like, you know, Yuval Harari has been going around mm-hmm. uh, talking about the dangers of having like Facebook, for example, being able to know you better than you know yourself, mm-hmm. right? So Facebook's building a black box model of, you know, two billion human brains, right? Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, they're doing a good job. What's interesting is they don't have to model everyone perfectly. Mm. They just have to be able to model some of the agents in the environment. Mm. And so, mm. you know, folks like you and me, like maybe we're a little bit more slippery, you know, and maybe some other, you know, and I'm saying that in a sense, like you and I have some special privilege or purchase on this. Mm. I think just like there's going to be some agents that are slippery. Yeah. And then some people are going to be really easy to predict. Mm. Um, and, and the question is, are you going to be easy to predict? Like, yeah. are you such that like, you're just kind of doing the thing that one would do in this situation. If you are, you're at danger at an agent now in your environment creating a really good model for you. Mm. And that model is not going to have to model everybody perfectly. It's just going to have to model enough people perfectly to be able to, say, like, swing a democratic election. Right? right? Yeah. And so there's a sense in which as soon as that happens, free will is actually, like, evaporating. Uh, if you remember the children's movie, The NeverEnding Story, right? Like, the nothingness was threatening Fantasia. It's a super Heideggerian book, uh-huh. uh, it's, and it holds up. I watch, I, I watch it probably once a year. It's so good. Yeah. But this idea of the nothingness being—it's not even like a something that's nothing. It's just—it's the evaporation of something uh-huh. that exists. And free will is kind of one of those things. It's like the frat—it's this fragile thing that can go away if you don't figure out how to use it and you know how to understand yourself better than the other agents in your environment. Um, 
Yeah, and I think for technology, this is also coming back to that relationship with technology. If your relationship to technology is such that technology actually knows you perfectly, mm. it's always giving you the recommendations you want. That's where you're getting your recommendations. That's where you're getting your ideas. Um, that's dangerous. Mm. And so the relationship you want with technology, is, especially if technology is almost in an adversarial position where they're trying to model you, mm. um, needs to be the kind of model you'd have if any other agent in your environment was trying to model you perfectly. Just be a little on your guard, right? <laughs> be sneaky. Yeah. And... Uh, while you were saying that, it reminds me of something that's been going through my head for the last six months or so, is that, to me, the nature of capitalism requires us to always make ourselves unique, that, that in order to participate in the marketplace, we have to have an uh, advantage over other agents, like you say, and so, uh, that it, that, so I'm finding, I can see this a lot in yoga teachers, uh, yoga itself thousands of years ago would be the person who wrote down the scriptures would not say their name or they would all include themselves in one overarching name so that they wouldn't get this kind of sense of individuality uh, and cult-like stuff changing their message. Now yoga teachers are always trying to be the most unique person on, on uh, in, in the social media thing. So if that thread is correct, now we're applying this, I have Facebook building a model of my, of my brain and I do feel like I'm trying to outwit a computer. I'm trying to become as unique as possible so that this thing is that is constantly modeling me won't be able to fit me into their model anymore. Um, which is, I, th I think, a, a privilege I have because of the education I've had and all this different stuff. Um, but yeah, it's quite interesting because sometimes I feel like I'm playing a, g a game of chess against something that will is way better chess than me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think in some ways you are. Mm. Like, I think you're always playing, you know, games of chess. Chess is like a zero-sum game, right? And so it's always, like, both, like, a really tempting and alluring metaphor, but it's also sometimes missing some things, right? Because so often we're playing chess with other agents in our environment, but, it's, you know, it's a chess with an affordance for, like, a positive-sum outcome. Mm. Which, like, I guess, you know, if you and I play chess and we enjoy it, there's a positive-sum outcome. So maybe it's still the right metaphor, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's tempting to think of the outcome of chess being the outcome of each match. Interesting. And I would say that, yeah, you know, if, 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 we, if we take the positive-sum version of it, technology is the kind of thing that it might have an adversarial relationship and that it wants to model you, but if you can find the right relationship with it, mm -hmm. the two of you will both be better off. Mm -hmm. It's a po I mean, that's the Danny Hillis, like, we're going to be just fine. We're going to figure our way out of this mm -hmm. thing. Um, and so I think turning relationships that feel adversarial into relationships that are positive some mm -hmm. is something that psycho the psychoanalytical world really understands and appreciates mm -hmm. um like jungian psychology the idea of like like learning to get on good terms with your shadow for mm -hmm. example or like the idea that every monster is like something in disguise that just wants to be loved mm -hmm. right and these things feel like fluffy west coast kind of ideas but the, there's some deep wisdom to them right mm -hmm. this idea that finding the part of you that you dislike the most that, that causes you the most problems and figuring out how to have a relationship to that part of you almost as if it was another part of you it's a complex it's separate from you right that's why mm -hmm. they use these metaphors of having like yeah, having like other agents inside of you, like the you know, the anima, the animus, like all these different archetypes. Like our relationship to technology could model that and use that wisdom to say, how do we extend a hand open to technology and say, let's let's work on this together. There's some really cool stuff for us in the next 10,000 years, mm. for example. Um, and instead, right now, we're creating technology that's mostly saying, like, I'm going to take your like technology. You know, agentially speaking, is like, I'm going to take your job. <laughs> I'm going to figure out what you're thinking and use it to sell you things you might not want. Yeah. Like, it's like, whoa, wait, hold on, why are we doing that? Yeah. We could be like working with these agents. Interesting. That's such a good point. Um, so, and to talk about that shadow and the unconscious shadow, it seems like Facebook and other social medias are making it 
are bringing that shadow out for the whole world to see, basically. You, you, it, 50 years ago, TV as a one-to-many um, uh, technology where, where one person would put their voice towards many, many thousands. Mm-hmm. Now we have something where it's one-to-one-to-one-to-one and it's everybody's shadow is coming out and, and, and it's very people are aware of it and, and, and there's starting to be a huge divisiveness between many different groups across the world. Um, and so it's, it's, what do we, what's the significance of that, of that, um, yeah, well, it's certainly not the first time the shadow side of human civilization is kind of, mm-hmm. you know, erupted or breached the surface, right? And I think history books are littered with these atrocities, everything from genocides to just like individual news headlines of terrible things that have happened, right? Like this is part of the human condition. These things happen, which isn't to say like you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. It's to say that like these things come together that with you know with civilizing forces and and machinations and you know mm. uh, the industrial revolution yeah. comes a different kind of war mm-hmm. right and yeah and the, and the the all of those previous genocides at least since the 1700s have happened because some sort of new technology has appeared uh, you mm. have uh, radio at least with the Rwandan genocide was a key Played well, uh, yeah. key factor uh, and Germany I mean Tons of technological revolutions happens to make that particular genocide uh, a reality. Um, I'm not sure. Probably radio would have uh, also for the Armenian genocide, which was the first genocide. So technology has been playing a role in these things already. So it's not like what we're facing is something new. It's just a new form of it, basically. It seems like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like back in the day we were throwing rocks at each other. Then Mm -hmm. at some point we were like shooting arrows at each other. Then we were shooting guns at each other. And like somewhere is like a version of this conversation on Mars where people are shooting laser blasters at each other, right? (laughs) There's like, that's kind of one understanding of the human condition is that like we're on this merry girl. Like it's always the same song, but just in a different key. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always like, you know what I mean? Like it's always the Wild West. Uh But what what counts is cowboys and Indians is different, you know, in every age. Um, I'm, I'm becoming more and more amenable to this general way of interpreting things mm. uh, I think you know it's kind of like this Manichaean idea right Manichaeanism mm. is this idea that everything's in balance the light and the dark side are always fighting each other and the light side always feels like it's winning just a little bit more or maybe like sometimes the dark side feels like it's winning a little bit more mm. but on net it's 50-50 mm. whereas I think a lot of techno-utopians and the folks that are really in the idea of progress right mm. a really clear capital P progress think of the world as like constantly getting just a little bit better even just 1% better a year compounds across time and you know you think of you know the singularitarians are like one side of it right where they think it's going to crescendo into like again like reinventing the kingdom of heaven in fact there's a whole like mormon christian transhumanist association which is reading the eschaton of the bible into the singularity idea that they think we're actually creating the new jerusalem Uh through technology which is a trip right which i think is really interesting um as as a thing to play around with conceptually and then on the other side you have the people that are like you know, and then sometimes people think tech lash is this, right? Like James Bridle, this idea that it's all going straight downhill again to like a final crescendo that we're going to have an extinction moment. You think about a lot of the existential risk stuff that you hear about, mm. right? You think about all the ways that AI is going to turn us into a paperclip factory mm. or that super bugs are going to get released and just wipe us all out or climate change can get this way sometimes in conversation, mm. slaughter bots, all these terrible X risk kind of things. Um, so it's interesting to me that anybody who thinks about technology deeply and really feels this idea of it not being 50-50 either sees it crescendoing in a terminal point up or a terminal point down. Or a 
even balance. Well, that's the Manichaeanist thing. Is like it's always just kind of like it's like you and I playing tug of war, and it's zero sum, and we're always just kind of pulling back and forth. Nothing ever, and nothing ever really changes. Humans are humans. Some humans are good. Some humans are bad. You want to be a good human. You want to help the good humans. Surround yourself with good humans. Like that's an old story. And our and our our like textual relationship with these stories goes back as mm. far back as writing goes back yeah. so we have a lot to draw on if we want to take that tack mm. but there's something also really tempting in our lifetime you know like we've lived through you know uh, you know basically probably one of the more long you know peaceful times of course like yeah. America was involved in other things but it wasn't like you know I, yeah, I, I never, I've never been death. drafted you yeah, know what I mean yeah, yeah. Um, and so like we've been able to kind of sell ourselves on this idea of everything getting better every year because yeah my iPhone just gets better every year yeah. like technology just gets cooler and mm-hmm. that's been every year of my entire life and something I've been thinking about is that that is continuing right now most people's lives are better than it was a year ago but there's a there's a collective conscious realization that that might not continue on um, or or it's just fear Playing, fear creating a self cycle that might lead it to that same thing. That's that's what I see. But yeah, or yeah. is or is somebody somewhere paying the price? Mm. So if it's not a po- if it's a positive sum game and we're just getting better and better and better, that's awesome. That's cool. Definitely like put the pedal to the floor and let's keep going, right? Mm. And that, I think like that's the techno utopian idea. Is like let's just keep innovating. Let's just keep building. Let's just keep going. Go go go. Accelerationism is kind of in mm. this in this wheelhouse too. And then there's other. But like if you think about it being in balance, fifty fifty. And you look around and everything's getting better and better and better for you and your friends. The implication is that for somebody somewhere it's getting worse. Mm. If you think it's imbalanced, yeah. right? Mm. And there's a beautiful short story that I would recommend everybody listening to this. Like, pause this and go read the short story The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas mm. by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh. I think it's like seven or eight pages. And... Uh, I can't, God, I guess I really can't give away why this is relevant without spoiling a part of the story, but it's just, it's the hyper distillation of this concept in a science fiction form that'll take you, you know, a cup of coffee to read. Wow. So right. it's really good and I highly recommend it. But yeah, uh, this is not a new idea. I'm not inventing this idea that like maybe the light side and the dark side are in balance. I mean, Star Wars is based on this concept, mm-hmm. right? There's so much of it. Yeah, and that's the thing is that ultimately all of this has been talked about before. It's just new conditions are entering that give it a new, like what you just said. The, 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 it's the same song being played in a different key. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so James Bridle is writing at a really pivotal time if mm. you think that all of this is new. Mm. If you don't mm. think it's all new, he's writing, he's rewriting the book that has been written many times. Uh-huh. And I think these books have to get written for a new generation, right? In the same way that Hamlet's an amazing story, but then you know I grew up with The Lion King, mm. which is Hamlet just there's lions cartoons right and it's just a more palatable version of hamlet and like later on as an adult i can get into the older stuff and i think james bridle is going to be selling this story about the relationship between humans and technology mm. to a whole new generation of people who you know he's built up a fan base talking about some very specific ways in which technology has failed us in mm. fact one of them is featured in the book um and that's the way that like youtube recommendation engines especially for children right like kids mm. youtube and it's it's crazy i mean it's just a mind-blowing he's written this article i mean I, again like anybody who's listening i'd recommend you check it out even if you don't read the whole book um his articles on the youtube kids recommendation engine are just jaw-droppingly bleak um and so like that's a new example is that the you know is that is that the canary in the coal mine for technology or is it just another example mm-hmm. i think that's kind of because i mean like that theme has existed since when we grew up and in our time it was both video games and porn internet porn like those were the things that were we shouldn't have had access to at our age and have corrupted us and now it's just at a younger age with a more intense 
uh, stimuli, basically. Of, of uh, for the listeners who haven't know about it, it's a YouTube video. There's algorithms creating strange YouTube videos that children just click on over and over and over again, and they splice really weird, violent scenes into it, and all this very strange stuff. And so kids are starting to have uh, you know mental health issues because of what they're seeing at a very young age. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. And then he mentions that there's also this thing that creates T-shirts and just puts different words together, and then you know you get you get some really nasty uh, T-shirts basically written and like it's just really weird. <laughs> it's just really bizarre. It's yeah. like it's like hyper absurd. Uh-huh. Um, it's almost Lynchian, mm. but it's like really just really strange when you and you, you come across these every now and then on Amazon. I'll come across like some of these products where it's like, why would I want that on my cell phone case? <laughs> yeah. But it's like you know whatever the computer thinks that's what you want. And that's the point of the book, too. Or one of the points of the book is that essentially the more we give up our power to technology, the more technology kind of creates these weird manifestations of, of, of what we want. But, and I would say this is a weird example of what I was talking about earlier with the mythos and logos mm-hmm. kind of being intention or mm-hmm. seeming to be intention. Like, th- there's no meaning to some of these videos. Mm-hmm. There's no narrative arc. There, it's just mm-hmm. absurd splices of violence or like, yeah, just like inappropriate contextual stuff. And uh, I think that's the thing is like, there's, as we get more efficient with these things, yeah. the meaning just slides away. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, another thing that he brought up that was so interesting was the chaotic sorting of the Amazon warehouses. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. That like, you know, a human run warehouse would put all the pencils at this end of the warehouse and all of like the basketballs over there. And the Amazon algorithms just have it in the most optimal location, which only makes sense if you're a computer. Yep. It's completely unintelligible to a human it looks like absolute chaos and a computer and a human needs a computer in order to translate the chaos yeah and so that was like out of the three things that i really took away from this book one was the relationship between technology and humans one was this idea of computational thinking no longer working the way it has uh the other one was like this idea of intelligibility is being lost and i guess maybe this is part of the mythos thing too right because mythology makes a whole world intelligible to you even as a kid right Mm. you watch lion king and you understand good guys bad guys redemption all kinds of ideas that are really hard to teach a kid but mm. you can just bake it into lion king right <laughs> um but now the opposite of that would be like the chaotic sorting of the amazon warehouses or like uh the AlphaGo. Mm. so like uh the AlphaGo documentary on netflix is fantastic and the tension around that one particular move that was just completely absurd everyone was like that's just not the move any mm. go master would make and it ended up being decisive uh-huh. they actually now look back at it and they think it's like one of the most beautiful go moves ever played which is wow that's crazy as yeah. a concept um, but like no one understands that and it calls into question why you would need to understand it like what is the value of possessing true information about the future mm. if you don't know how we get to that mm. it's actually a really like it's a deeper deeper question I think on the surface and even like should we understand how AlphaGo plays Go it's like um, uh, what is the name uh, Ramanujan the the Indian mathematician in the twentieth century that had a, some correspondence with some some big leagues back in the day, but he he was a, he was a he could like generate math proofs out of his mind, mm-hmm. and he but he couldn't understand how to like actually prove it. He'd be like, no, this total thing's true, and they'd be like, yeah, but like you have to show us how you got there. He's like, well, I can't really. He's like, you know, it's like being in fourth grade <laughs> yeah. having to show your work for long division, <laughs> yeah. and like sometimes you just know this one, you just seen it enough times, and uh. the teacher gets mad and says, no, you have to show your work, and like. There was no work, right? Uh-huh. Like, what's the definition of work, right? This is a deep, deep area. Yeah. But this idea of intelligibility, like, having, just being able to say true things isn't enough if you're trying to preserve a relationship. Mm. And this is kind of gets into, like, relationship therapy and we're getting back into psychoanalysis. This idea of, like, just being right about something or understanding something or seeing how something is 
is only part of the battle. The other part is like being able to communicate and being able to share information back and forth. And so if we want a free relationship with technology, mm. which is what Heidegger told us we wanted you know, over 100 years ago, mm. um, and I think Nietzsche even longer than that, if we want that free relationship technology, we have to kind of insist that technology lets us know what's going on. It's essentially establishing boundaries with, with technology. <laughs> yeah, just like any other good relationship. Yeah. And historically, mm. so one of the best books ever written on technological development, in my humble opinion, is this book called Technosis by Eric Davis. Oh, he wrote it in 1998, and Eric's since become a friend, and he's been a friend of the Long Now Foundations for a long time. Um, but it's a, this idea of like of uh, just understanding where the idea of technological development really came from, and how ancient some of these concepts are. Like, So mm. he's going back to the Gnostic Gospels, for a lot of it because mm. it was it was the 90s and they were just discovered and it was like a it was a really cool way to get into this idea of religious metaphors that are thousands of years old driving present day behavior um, but in there you know he also talks a little bit about like animism mm. and neo-animism and this idea of like we used to also try to have something of a communicative relationship to the gods mm. you know so if it wasn't raining and it was a drought we used to demand we used to like go out and dance and stomp on the ground and make a bunch of noise and pretty much like just beg for attention yeah. because we were feeling a little bit neglected in those moments. Like, yeah. hey, we had an agreement here. I've got some crops. You need to show up with the water and you haven't shown up and we need to talk. Need right? A rain dance is really just an animistic way of saying we need to talk. And so what kind of ways are we going to develop rituals around querying these, you know, these server farms you know, where all of our data is sitting there and it's like, I know you just you just sent me the perfect book recommendation, but I need to know why you thought mm. I needed that now. And I just have, need to know. I demand to know why you made me watch that movie right now. And what Vital says is that nobody has access to that information. Even the engineers who have built the network don't have access to why that, that recommendation was made, which was his fourth robotic law. He, he had the three laws of Asimov, uh, which I can't remember now, but the fourth one he added on and made it he made it the substrate of all the other three, which was that technology must be able to explain to its human user why they did that thing, what mm -hmm. appear into their thing, which which I think is a good law. <laughs> I think it is too. I don't think he really uh, tied that into the idea of it being part of the relationship. Mm. And that's why I think there's going to be another, there's another great TechLash book someone will write in the future. Mm. Maybe about the relationship. Maybe I'll write it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea of the importance of that being, it, it being kind of housed in the relationship, that's where the problem is. Mm. The problem is not technology. Yeah. Technology is amazing, mm. right? Like we just gotta, we have to be straight up honest about this. I mean, I'm sure there's luddites out there who think it's terrible, and like, it's like on the whole, I would have, I would have died so many times before this conversation yep. had it not been for technology. Yep. I mean, just over a month ago, I got hit by a car on Franklin here in San Francisco, commuting into the office, and uh, I got a crazy infection that put me in the emergency room. Mm. And had it not been for medical technology, I would have at least lost a leg, mm. if not been in even worse shape. And that's only like one of many times. I'm yeah. sure you have a couple of stories. Yeah, like my this dad too. just got over leukemia, and the only way he survived right now is because of uh, medical technology. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I could never be one of those people who looks at technology and says we'd be better off without it. Mm. No, not mm. at all. Mm -hmm. But part again, like part of the challenge of technological development was developing it as a technological challenge. Mm. So just technically making it better. So that's mm. Moore's law, right? Just improving on our tech. But now we're at the spot mm. where technological development isn't technological, mm. it's relationship, philosophical, yeah. it's philosophical, it's yeah. political. Yeah. It's saying if we're gonna have these agents in our environment that are structuring our environment, we should be able to make demands on them as, as centers of power the same way the press makes demands on centers of power, you know what I mean? Mm. We should as a people be able to query and ask them to explain themselves, ask them to be accountable to us, just like we are with every other agent in our civil society. And this, yeah, this could go either two ways. We've got, we could define what a healthy relationship is and then, def and then go into what a healthy relationship would look like with technology. 
or we could talk about how this has already happened where where humanity had to integrate what it learned from technology coming in and create making us more productive and then giving uh, and then creating unions essentially and then and then uh, humanity's reaction to technology but that cycle is now going very fast and so it's speeding up and so it depends on our ability as human beings to integrate quickly uh, so so having Facebook you know create this network of two billion people and then you know bad actors come into it and then how quickly can we adapt to that because that seems to be the fundamental question so what do you think is more important or more interesting to go into relationship with technology or this uh, how quickly we can integrate lessons from technology. Can I say both? Can sure, we do yeah. both? <laughs> I think simultaneously it's it's the, to really keep pressing on the relationship metaphor. Yeah. Um, it's this idea that like all of your relationships have exogenous things that can come in, bad actors or just like, God, you talk about leukemia or something, right? Mm. Like you can have these things come into your life and your relationships and they affect them. Mm. They can't not affect them. But a healthy relationship is one in which this is a perturbation that doesn't completely destroy the system, doesn't destroy the network of the relationships. Yeah. yeah, the system improves because of it. Like mm. there's this developmental thing again to Nietzsche again uh, you know great suffering makes great mm. the idea that like through being um, subject to difficulty and chaos mm. we actually find new ways of adapting and growing and developing ourselves and so it's not even that you want to get rid of this kind of stuff this is going to happen it's pretty mm. inevitable how do you build relationships that can withstand this stuff when it does happen inevitably mm. um, and then again like so to talk about what a good relationship would be is is to ask it in one way, we can ask it like a technological question, which is, what is like the optimal relationship mm. structure and format, right? <laughs> which I think is precisely the wrong question to ask. <laughs> yeah. I think it's actually like, yeah. nobody knows what a good relationship is. It's negotiated yeah. amongst the people in relation. Yeah. So like, you and I have a relationship that works for you and me, mm. and maybe somebody else, that relationship doesn't work. They want more time. They want less time. They don't want to listen to me talk about technology for two hours. Mm. Like, and, and every relationship has to be treated really uniquely and specially. So the, the so in order to have a healthy relationship, both parties in the relationship must recognize the individuality and the uniqueness of that relationship. Yeah, so your relationship to Facebook could be very different yeah. than my relationship to Facebook. Yeah. Maybe you actually do get a lot of value out of the ads, and I just don't feel like that, but I love some of the recommended articles. Mm. And so I'm like, you know, willing to make trade-offs. Um, we don't even have the infrastructure to support this right now, but I think technological development needs this kind of attention mm. and there's some people working on this like uh, you know, friends over at the Center for Humane Technology mm. are exactly addressing this and saying like well how do we just build better technology we don't want to destroy the machines we don't want the machines to destroy us either mm. so mm. interesting yep what else I've got some other stuff here that we didn't talk about I mean I have some book recommendations. If I can mention those now, it's probably a good time. I already mentioned Eric Davis's Technosis. Um, Kevin Kelly wrote a book called What Technology Wants, which, again, like, think about that. It's so animistic in its phrasing, right? (laughs) Technology wanting a thing. You know, in true Kevin Kelly form, he's arrived at our conclusion, but, like, a decade before we got there. Um, But highly recommend that. I think it's a really interesting book about technology as an an agent, as something with agency. Um, Martin Heidegger, The Question Concerning Technology. And then Hans Jonas, um, uh, looks like Hans Jonas toward a philosophy of technology mm. is another just fantastic brief white paper mm. on exactly this like how do we actually f- deeply philosophically think about a relationship to technology he's kind of growing out of the Heidegger stuff mm. so mm. all really good very interesting yeah just a quick point you probably got about five to ten minutes left the quick point uh, well maybe it's not a quick point of 
you talked about the spirit of technology, you use different words, and often the analogy is being made to Google as an oracle. So now instead of going to church and finding the answers in church, we then just type it on Google and Google spits out an answer that's pretty helpful. Um, what do you think about that? That Can we go more into this animus of technology? Yeah, yeah, what's that going to look like? I think we're prepping ourselves a little bit, right, mm. with, you know, virtual assistants in our home. Mm. Um, I've got a close friend who runs, a, who actually introduced the two of us, uh-huh. who runs a virtual assistant program, and he's got AI that's helping people do their rote tasks called Invisible Technologies. And so, like, we're already kind of starting to learn how to interface and relate. You know, you have an entire movie, like in Her, mm. right? Yeah. There's an entire movie that involves a guy interfacing with his computer, you don't even see on the screen that's that's really and interesting which, yeah and, and those that technology then becomes more metaphysically uh, insightful than them and then just leaves them in the dust and goes off into their own metaphysical world yeah. exactly the relationship ruptures yeah uh-huh. because they're just but we know this in our relationships right like what happens if you were like really good friends with somebody in your hometown and then like you went off and did a bunch of things and they mm-hmm. didn't and you guys just got different interests and you split like we've i think everybody listening to this podcast has probably been in a relationship where people have just gone their separate ways mm-hmm. like whether it's a job relationship or a romantic relationship or a friendship or even family relationship mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. like and you just kind of you know you end up saying all right the best thing for both of us is to go mm-hmm. and to see a computer do that mm-hmm. makes you realize like oh maybe one of the things we want is like a stable relationship across time <laughs> not just having one for a little bit this is not a summer fling we're having with yeah, technology well. We want something more akin to like a traditional idea of a marriage. Which right? gets into kind of what the singularity and what are the AI pe- people working on AI are talking about, which is essentially what happens if we're just the stepping stone on the way to a new form of consciousness, a new form of evolution, which is technology either on its own or in some sort of combination with human intelligence creating this new species that, and then 99% of the population becomes antiquated, uh, which is, yeah. I'll say, yeah, what do you think about that? What do you think about that transhumanist ideal? Uh, I often play with it in my head, and I, I, I see in my experience with Duolingo and these, these kind of nascent technologies that are improving my ability to be human, I see it, I look 10 steps ahead and say, okay, so I've got this thing that is quizzing me each morning, and now what happens when our ability to compute data starts to change. I just got my genome sequence, my entire genome sequence for 200 bucks. And like, what happens when that, when they can actually go in and change my genes? I don't know if that's actually like, you know, a technology that, that, that is happening, but I can see that happening. And unless we have some sort of global uh, consensus on where the line is, how much technology can, and I don't think that's gonna happen, then I, I can very well see some sort of race of humans uh, mm. uh, becoming very Splitting powerful. off and breaking yeah. off. Yeah. It's no longer relevant to have that relationship, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, I think that's why these questions, rather than being technological in nature, mm. they're political and they're philosophical, and I think in some ways psychological. Mm. The question is, what kind of a world do we want to live in? This has been the age-old political question, right? Who gets what and why? Mm. Um, and how do we create a system that's going to be stable across time? Mm. If what we really want is a system that's stable across time, then we have to kind of demand that nobody breaks off. Mm. Like, you <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like, nobody leaves uh-huh. till the movie's over, right? Uh-huh. And the movie's not going to be over, and so, like, hang tight. Yeah. But, like, if we're okay with this idea that, like, this relationship that we have with the world as a whole, you know, all of us here on the blue marble Mm. if we're saying that like yeah we're all here but we understand that some of you a small number of you are going to upgrade Mm. and Mm. just be better and more important and you can get rid of the rest of us is that a political strategy that anyone would like 
explicitly go into. No. But, you know, there's things like slavery or even like war, conscription. These things people didn't explicitly agree on. Just somebody like Mm. submitted them to it, Mm. right? And said, you have to do this. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense in which you can imagine there's a unilateral defector who takes one of these technologies and says, I'm now king or queen and you are all now below me and I'll see you later. We're going to rupture our relationship. Um, But no one, I think, would submit to that. And this is, again, like the reason why I keep going back to this it being an old old problem is like mm. that's the Thrasymachus debate in the Republic mm. with Plato mm. the idea of might versus right and like if you have the might if you have the material edge mm-hmm. on other people should that Give be more important than the rightness of an argument or of like an ideal mm-hmm. like freedom mm. or justice or truth mm. right um, or like the uniqueness of an individual spirit mm. whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. or like, you know the Human yeah all this kind of stuff and so we have to I think decide like are these ideals important to us do we still care about what right means what that would even mean mm. in like an alternative facts fake news world do we still care about some kind of consensus attractor mm. um, or are we just like all is it the time? Is it the part of the party where everyone's off on their own and it's like everyone's just kind of disappearing <laughs> and paying yeah. their own bills? Yeah. yeah. Are we all just kind of? And I think like the individualism that mm. crept in over the last couple yeah. hundred years has really now seeded this idea of being somewhat sensible, but yeah. it seems really nonsensical mm. to me. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see a political world come about in which we have healthy relationships both with these agents, but then also each other. And, you know, we actually can relate mm. better and build better political systems. I don't think we've discovered all of the good political systems out there. Mm. Um, technology is augmenting our ability to do really awesome shit. Mm. And cool. I'd like to see us do awesome shit in the political arena, the philosophical arena, the personal arena, the psychological arena. Mm. There's a lot to go on that. And I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to necessarily bring it back to this 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 uh, transhumanism thing. But an idea came and I wanted to, to, to express it, yeah. which is that... So say that virtual reality spaces now, 20, 30 years, become actual spaces where people can spend most of their waking time, uh, and then the nature of, and maybe the nature of consciousness isn't as material as we, we expect it to be, or maybe it is material as material as we expect it to be, and we can actually transfer, transfer consciousness into a digital avatar, and then you're playing in different worlds, and maybe in that sense of like splitting off, you can have that that um, that splitting off happens like you just give them a whole new virtual world to to live in, but that gets into the nature of, of, of our reality and a lot of people talk about how we are a virtual reality program um, that our, our current reality is is that in another thing. So yeah, I mean, and like let's keep going down that path for a minute, right? Mm. So all of a sudden, why just go live in one reality? Mm. Split yourself, live in two, <laughs> right? And then yeah. why just two? Like go for two billion, mm. go for as many as you can. And this is like an ancient, like Indian philosophical idea of like basically, yeah, go live all the lives there are. Mm. Go be an earthworm. Go be you know mm. a sled dog in the Iditarod. Go be Stuart. Go be Nick. Yeah. Like go do all of it. And when you're done doing all of it, what yeah. do you do? <laughs> right, like you kind of. This is these are old ideas. I yeah. think these are important ideas. Yeah. And but this is part of my feeling of being on this merry-go-round. It's like, oh man, we're here again. Like we're we're literally touching on ideas that are like millennia old. Yeah. Which is why the Long Now Foundation is like the perfect place to have this conversation. Is because yeah, we are kind of both looking forward to the future uh, in, on a millennial scale. But like also yeah, we got to look back and see where we came from and what's already been. We've been armed to the teeth mm. with culture mm. and civilization, well, and we're we're both in a more precarious situation than we've ever been, but we've never been more prepared than this. Um, 
and I'm with Danny, I think like our ability to solve these kinds of problems, to address these challenges is, is always going to be a little bit bigger than we ever expected it to be. Huh. And I think the anomalies are on our side mm-hmm. that we'll actually, we'll be surprised with how awesome things could be. That's probably a really amazing place to, to end it. And how can people find you to continue this conversation? Yeah, um, I am on Twitter at, I think, just Nicholas Paul. I'm on, my email address is nick at longnow.org if anybody's curious or wants to come in and learn more about the Long Now Foundation. Of course, longnow.org, L-O-N-G-N-O-W.org is the place to learn about everything we're doing here at the Foundation. And if you're in San Francisco, I warmly welcome you to come into the Interval up at the Fort Mason Center on the North Waterfront. Um, Come join us for a cocktail sometime. I'm here on Friday evenings with a couple dozen really awesome people working on really interesting projects, including yourself. Talking about stuff like this. Yeah, we're doing this every Friday. So if this is at all interesting to you, wherever you're listening, um, come and do it in person over a cocktail. Make it even more interesting. Any Friday night, I'm usually here like 5 to 10, 5 to midnight, depending on depending on exactly what philosophical topics we're getting into that evening. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Stuart. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy, because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you.